You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 119. Let's just jump straight in. We are on verse 89. We'll read the whole of Lamed, which is the the Hebrew letter at the top. We'll read the whole stanza. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. And probably one of the best known verses in this psalm now starts, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. This is a monumentally important verse. It's theologically rich, and I believe it has an essential message that is just as relevant to us today as it was when this was first written. It speaks to us of the eternality of God's word. You see, the authority of God's word is tied to God's nature, and his nature is he is eternal. Therefore, the origin of scriptures, as we say, inspired or God-breathed, it comes from outside of our time domain. It comes from the Father of glory himself. It is eternal. It is settled in heaven. Now, the word settled there means made secure. It's talking like a standard in some respects. It's crucial to understand. We do live in an age where it is very popular to make our own opinions the determining factor of truth. We see this playing out in almost every social sphere that we have available today. And I like the reminder here, it doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter if people believe the Bible or not. It doesn't matter. The word of God is settled in heaven. It is true. And we have that anchor, that solid rock to stand on. That might be uncomfortable sometimes. It might not be a message that everyone wants to hear. But for us, we need to know that that is true. And one day, everyone will know that that is true. You see, it's common for scholars, and even in the church, to get together, have their councils, to vote on the words that should or should not be in the Bible. What did Jesus really say? What does the Bible really teach? And they, if the vote comes in high, that's obviously what happened. And on and on this goes. You see it on the news all the time. Every Easter, every Christmas, magazines come out with new articles, new interpretations to denigrate various teachings in the Bible. We see it all the time. But we know the word of God is secure. It is in a place above our own opinions. It is the authority in our lives. When you place your own opinion, we see this. So anyone know there's a, there's a popular thing called red-letter Christianity? Has anyone heard that recently? It's, it's a few years old now, really. But red-letter Christianity was basically a way that people would say they're New Testament Christians. They only take the words of Jesus and Really, they would do this to then explain that because Jesus didn't specifically mention with the exact words this cultural issue or this issue that's socially unacceptable today, then thus we don't need to worry about it because the Old Testament might mention it, but we're not Old Testament Christians. You see, it's just an absolutely shallow form of understanding of the Bible and Christianity, and we need to reject that. When you do that, what you're doing is you're placing your own opinion, your own word, 
above the word of God. In fact, I would probably go a step further and say, when you do that, you are actually worshipping your own opinions. And thus, that is actually idolatry of the highest sort. But we don't often think of it like that, but that is, I can't see how you get around. That is actually what you've done when you elevate your own opinion above the word of God. How many deconstruction stories have we heard in the last five years? Famous worship leaders, famous Christians, famous pastors, if I could use that word famous, I hate to use that word, but you know what I mean, who have gone on record about their deconversion stories. And usually when you read these stories, you'll find at some point it'll start with removing the authority from the word of God in their own minds. They listen to either skeptics' questions or they haven't been trained how to answer some of these issues, and that starts the process unravelling. Because when you don't have faith in the word of God or you don't understand the authority of the word of God, you don't just live in a neutral zone. Something else will fill that void in your life. And there are many different things in this world that would love to fill that void, and they do. And people just absorb them. That's kind of how we work. We see things, we hear things, and we absorb it. And if we don't have a filter, then it affects our soul and our life. And this has led to many people uh, leaving the faith. But the psalmist here settles it once and for all. He says, the word is established eternally from heaven, regardless of what we think. This means that every single word of it is of the utmost importance to the Christian. As Jesus said, every jot and tittle. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The prophet Isaiah wrote, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This means that anything that denigrates the word of God should be rejected. Any ideology that dilutes the word of God should be refuted. And all of it should be accepted by those who follow Jesus as the word of God. That's why verse 89 is just a wonderful verse in this psalm. He goes on in verse 90. Your faithfulness continues or stands, your Bible might say, throughout all generations. This is really just reminding us that the word is tied to God's character. The character of God is faithfulness. If you wanted to say well, a good description of God, a one-word description of God, faithful, faithfulness is a good description. It is, his character is tied to the word, and we have that. Verse, let's just read verse 19 and 91. You establish the earth, and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. Now, I find this fascinating. You see, he, he raises the creation ordinances here, and they are used to illustrate the faithfulness of God across generations, as in, the creation, the stars, the sun, the moon, the star, they are always there. Every generation has seen them, has been witness to them. And this is a very good illustration if you want to speak of God's faithfulness. Every generation has seen God's faithfulness. He is the same, eternal, unchanging. But he ties this to the word of God. And this is interesting. He says, they stand, speaking of the earth and the ordinances of heaven, he says, they stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. And when he says the term, your ordinance is there, do you remember, as we've seen in this psalm, that is one of the terms he uses to describe the word of God. Ordinances, commandments, laws, statutes, all these different words. So he's saying, literally, that the heavens, the earth, is there because of the word of God. And this is, he's drawing upon Jewish teaching, Jewish thought has a teaching that literally the word of God created the heavens. And it's a very biblical teaching. It comes straight from the book of Genesis. You remember in Genesis 1 and 2, If you read through Genesis 1 and 2, which is the creation narrative of the heavens and everything here, you'll find the phrase, and God said, ten times. And God said, he spoke everything into existence. So they see this as the actual earth is here 
because of the creative power of the word of God. These ten words, they say, and God said, literally formed the universe. And then the sages of Israel would make a connection and they would go on and teach that in Deuteronomy, God gave another ten words. And by those other ten words, he changed the chaos of immorality into an ethical order of existence. By ten words, he spoke everything into existence with the Ten Commandments, the ten words as they call them, he changed and gave us that moral guideline for humanity in that sense. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Now I love this. If your law had not been my delight, the word of God was a delight to him. It's a strong expression. To delight in something is something that you find joy in. It's something that you find satisfaction in. It's something that is a good time for you, something that you can just enjoy. It's such a rich word, and it's a good time, as I, you probably, on every, almost every verse in this psalm is challenging. What are our attitudes towards the word of God? Because I can tell you this, if it's something that you delight in, you'll do it more than just Wednesday night and Sunday morning. You'll be in it more than just when the pastor's teaching. If you really delight in it, it's where you will go to when you're down. It's where you will go to when you need comfort. It's where you will go to when you need consolation, when you need instruction, when you need wisdom. That is something that you delight in. And that is not just for leaders in the church. That is a command for everyone in the church. And this is something we need to understand. This is why the word of God must have such a high priority in our lives. Do we truly delight in the word of God? And I would say, I'm not being unrealistic. I know that a lot of people find reading the Bible hard. We've got to be honest with ourselves. You don't want to pretend that you do just because you think other people do. It can be hard to get into the word of God sometimes. It's one of those things, I'll just encourage you, the more you do it, the easier it will become. But it doesn't just happen. Sometimes it takes work and you have to labor in it. It's a big process. But the more you do that, the more rewards you reap from it. The better you know the one who revealed it, the better you know how to act in certain situations, the more guidance and wisdom you have, the more you spend time in the word of God. He delighted in it. And notice what it says. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I find this, again, just a fascinating association he makes here. Because he delighted in the word of God, he was able to get through the afflictions in his life. The tough times that came to this psalmist. We don't know what they are, like I said, but we know he had them. Just as pretty much every one of us has or will go through very tough times in life. And the psalmist here is saying, if I did not delight in the word of God, if I hadn't got that love relationship with the word of God, you could say it like that, I probably would have perished during those trials. And this shows you how much comfort and support and guidance the psalmist put in the word of God. Because the negative of this verse is something that we need to take seriously. Does it mean that the negative is true? If he did not delight in the word of God, would he have actually perished in those afflictions? Would he not have been able to get through them? Now, it doesn't answer. That's a rhetorical question. Don't misunderstand me. But it's something I want us to think about. Again, because this whole psalm emphasizes the same theme, the word of God in our lives. Now, I've had many conversations with people over the years, Christians in churches and Christians out out of who are no longer at churches, who are struggling in their walks. And there are always external circumstances for this, and I'm not demeaning them. They're real, they're tough, and these are the afflictions that come upon us in a fallen world. But usually when I've dug below the surface in these conversations, you'll find that these afflictions have pushed them away from the word of God rather than push them to. They've allowed that to happen, and they, they've either got issues of anger or bitterness or whatever. There's a million different 
reasons. I'm not looking to psychoanalyze. But what you'll usually find is that they're not in the word of God on a regular basis. Because it is the word of God that helps us to get through these things. Let's look at verse 93. He says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. Now, again, fascinating. The word revives him, vitalizes him. In some translations, it will say give life, in fact. This is what it's talking about here. And this, again, a very good lesson for us when things get tough. We need the word of God. There is no substitute, nothing that can replace exposure to the living word of God. Not listening to a sermon, not listening to something online. These are all good things. The Lord can use them to speak to you, and in many ways you do get the word of God. But I believe it's something more personal than that that's being spoken about here. It's you on your knees with the Holy Spirit seeking the Lord, listening to what he has to say in your word. All of these things come into play when you're looking for the word of God. He says, I will never forget your word because they have revived me. Now, we miss something in the English translation here I want to share with you because, again, it's fascinating I find it fascinating. We'll see if you do. The word never, in my Bible, it says never in verse 93. In Hebrew, that is actually the same word as we started this whole section with, forever. Now, in English, we see we don't get the connection there, never and forever. They seem like two different concepts. But in fact, in Hebrew, they are the same word. One is just being stated negatively and one is being stated positively. You see, to say you will always remember is the same as saying, I will not forget. You see what I mean? And that's actually what's happening here. And with that wordplay, the author is actually making a connection here. He wants you to make this connection. It acts as a counterpart to these two points that he's making, and it's absolutely beautiful. What the psalmist is saying is that he is determined that God's word will be settled permanently in his heart and mind, just as God has settled his word permanently in the heavens. And that's the two, this whole section is divided into these two structures. Just as the word is to be settled in heaven by the Lord, the psalmist wants the word to be settled in his own heart and mind in himself. This is the point he's making. Verse 96, let's look at verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. What a, is it a difficult verse actually to figure out what he's meaning. Translators differ. The thought seems to be all the claims to perfection that have been made by men that this psalmist has encountered, they have limits. They ultimately fail at some point to be what we would call perfect. But the claims of the word of God are broad enough that they support all truth claims. It supports itself. And the point is, it's talking about the word of God being that firm foundation. It makes you think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, where he talks about the person who hears and obeys the word of God is on a solid foundation and... If you don't obey them, you're on sinking sand. Let's look at verse 97. Let's go down to verse 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Again, a lovely section here. So if the first 
stanza that we looked at, you could summarize that by saying it's the eternality of God's word. This second section is what we would call the sweetness of God's word. For the third time now uh, in this psalm, he expresses his love for the word of God. But he does it here even more passionately than he has done in previous verses. You can sense that in the English a little bit with the oh how. It's like an ex, oh, how I love your word, is what he's basically crying out here. It's in a passionate, intense love that he's referring to. And this intense devotion that he has for the word of God has almost formed this love relationship that he has. Because he loves it so much, it is his meditation all day. And this is, again, we understand this just from human love relationships. You want to spend every moment with it, with the person you love, with the one you love, or the thing you love, if, if it would regardless of what it is. But in this context, the word of God. You want to read it, listen to it, memorize it, learn it, obey it. You want to tell others about it, on and on and on. This is what you do with someone you love, with something you love. And he's saying here that he loves the word of God. He meditates it all day. Whatever he's doing, whether he's at work, whether he's not at work, it's in his mind It's because it's in his heart. He's chewing it over. He's thinking on it. He's waiting to tell someone about it. He's discussing it with people. This is what happens when you love the word of God. And I believe it will just happen naturally in your life. Yes, you can put, a, put aside specific times, as they used to do in, in Old Testament times, but we know that it's more talking about just a continual attitude of the heart that loves the word of God, and it will be an overflow of your heart as these things come out in your life. He meditates on it all day. Now, in light of this desire... I do want to address an evangelical problem that we might see actually hinder the cultivation of a relationship like this with the word of God. And this might sting a little for some of us, but bear with me before you start heckling me. You may have heard an expression similar to something like this. Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationship. Christianity isn't about religion, it's about relationship. Yeah, you've heard that phrase? Now, that is a very popular evangelical slogan, and don't get me wrong, I understand the context that it's usually given in evangelistic context to try and emphasize personal faith as opposed to people who are trying to work for their salvation. I don't have a problem with it in that context, so don't misunderstand me. But I don't like it because it comes with baggage. When you use that phrase, something inadvertently happens and clings on to that phrase and creates a false emphasis of these two things. It pits rules against relationship. Just by the way the sentence is always phrased, it's not about this, it is about this, it creates a dichotomy between these two things. So it pits rules against relationship, whereas the biblical model sees rules and relationship as actually friends. Name one relationship in your life that doesn't have rules and etiquette in it. If you didn't have a relationship with rules with your, in your marriage, your marriage would fall apart. If you didn't have a relationship with government or with police or with work or with employers... Every relationship has rules for the protection of that relationship. This is what I want to have you thinking in a slightly different way now. Like I said, I know that slogan is always used in the context of works-based salvation, but it has baggage with it. And this is what it's done. It has created an environment where the personal faith aspect is elevated so much that we put rules against relationships. So let's ask the question, is it about relationship or is it about rules? Is Christianity about a relationship or is it about rules? Now, the fact that I have to ask that question shows that we're, we've been influenced by this sort of expression because the answer is simply, of course, it's about both. There is absolutely rules in Christianity and there is absolutely a relationship in Christianity. The two very much go hand in hand. In fact, what the psalmist, I believe, is saying here is that 
He loves those ruled because of his relationship, because he knows that those rules are actually a representation of the one he loves, and they are guiding him to get closer to the one he has a relationship with. And by that, they work together. We don't pit them off against each other. They work together. They are actually there to protect each other. And I think this is just a different way of thinking about it. It's a very Hebraic way of thinking about it that always has conduct and faithfulness as the outworking of our faith at the forefront of their minds. So through the relationship, we learn to delight in the rules. Or we could use instruction rather than rules, if if that rules has a bit of baggage on it, that term there in our context. But they are the vehicle by which we are taught to imitate the one we love. They work in unison together in the life of a believer. Jesus never pitted rules against relationship. Yes, he addressed those who thought that salvation could come through keeping rules. Absolutely he did. But in the life of a believer, this is different. Remember in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying here. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all my day. Your commandments have made me wiser than my enemies. He loves the word of God. He understands what it is. And this is, it's not just Old Testament, you see, this is the New Testament. That's what Jesus said. The Apostle John is even clearer in his epistle. 1 John 5, verse 3. It's an amazing verse. He says, for this is the love of God. Now think about that, because our relationship is based on the love of God, yes? That is what we have. When we're emphasizing the relationship element, we're emphasizing the love of God poured out on the cross for sinners so that we could have relationship with him. But how does he define it? This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then he goes on, listen, and his commandments are not burdensome. They are not burdensome because we love and delight in the law of God, because we understand what it is and we understand the one who gave it. We understand what it reveals to us about the one who gave it. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. But rules very much go with relationship. In fact, they actually make the relationship work. They are there for a reason. And we're talking about God's rules here, so we know there's no mistake or any like human human institutions obviously have rules that you might disagree with and you think, well, what are they for? It's not what I'm talking about. These are God's rules. He knows exactly how our relationship is to work, and he gave us rules to protect and actually heighten the depth of intimacy that we would have in this relationship with him. You see, so in our desire to maybe avoid legalism, which is very destructive, or to avoid preaching a works-based salvation common in other religious systems, we may have actually inadvertently brought some baggage into the equation that makes it more difficult to emulate the attitude of the psalmist here who can simply declare, oh, how I love the commandments of God. And this is actually, again, like I said, the heart of Jesus, for this is the love of God that you keep my commandments. But we see some benefits of the word of God and the commandments of God, keeping them in the rest of this uh, little stanza here. Verse 98 It says, make me wiser than my enemies. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Verse 99, it says, it'll give me more insight than all my teachers. Verse 100, it'll help me to understand more than the aged. And verse 101, it restrains my feet. If I could sum this up for you, the word of God gives wisdom, insight, understanding, and direction. Wisdom, insight, understanding, and direction. And I like the way he phrases it. If you have insight and wisdom that's come to you from the word of God, it's a high possibility that you'll have more insight than some teachers who maybe haven't. They might be very academically advanced, more than you, but if they're going against the word of God, 
and you have the truth of the word of God, you can agree with the psalmist here, you actually have more insight, more light than those people do. It says you understand more than the aged, and this is again referring to the aged in the sense that those who are not teaching the word of God or do not have the word of God. And then verse 101, he restrains my feet. This is direction. The word of God gives us direction. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Look at verse 103, another one of my favorite verses in this psalm. It's one of those psalms, you know, if you do Bible highlighting and you're reading and you think, that's an important verse, I'll highlight that one, I'll highlight that one. If you read Psalm 119, your, your whole Bible will pretty much be highlighted for the whole psalm. There's not many verses that you can't really highlight in it. So now remember I said I had the whole of this psalm in my kitchen. It's like in a picture, but this actual particular verse, Psalm 103, we have this one just hidden in our kitchen above our fridge. It's kind of remind me when I'm feeling like gluttony's pulling me towards the fridge. It says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And again, this is really just an overflow of this man's heart who's writing this psalm. It's an emphatic declaration of his personal love for the word. And this time he uses the analogy of food, in fact, of honey. Honey was obviously considered a delicacy in these times. It was something to be savoured, something to be enjoyed. It brought excitement and had very good results. It was sweet, obviously. People would quite often put it on bad food that was very bitter and hard to eat. It would be common in these days to put a bit of honey on it so that you could eat it. And I like that. And I think that's the reason why he's using this as an analogy. The word of God's often compared with food and drink and milk and meat. But honey here is something good. Think about it. It takes away the bitterness. So when the soul is under affliction, when you're under trial, when you're feeling downtrodden, when you're feeling weary, when persecution hits, whatever it may be in your life, add some sweetness with the promises of the word of God. That's basically what he's saying here. It's sweet to your taste and it goes into your body and it produces good things. The word of God. Let's read verse 105 down to 112, the whole next section. And we're actually going to end on this one tonight. And next week, hopefully, we will finish this psalm. There's still quite a lot more to go. It's the longest psalm in the Bible, like I said. And there's so much here, I really didn't want to rush it. And this is, again, a very famous verse. 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Many of you will know that because of the Amy Grant song. If you've been a Christian through the 90s, then you, you would have heard that song. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, Yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever. For they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. So in the first section, we had the eternality of God's word. Then we had the sweetness of God's word. Now we have the illumination of God's word. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Now, most Christians have this verse memorized just because we've heard it so much in different songs and things like that. If you don't have this, um, this verse memorized, I'd suggest very much that you put it on your memory plan. If you don't have a memory plan, I'd recommend very much that you try and get a memory plan. It does serve you well in those situations when the Spirit wants to recall the Word of God in your life. You remember the psalmist, we just read it. He loves the law. He meditates it 
day and night. There may be times when you need to meditate on the Word of God and you can't actually open your Bible or get your phone out. If it's in your heart and your mind, you're going to be meditating on it. This is a verse that we all need. It's practical instruction for the Christian of the most foundational sort. The Word is the source of light in this picture. The Word of God is the source of light. We know this because God is light. We know this because the origin of the Word is that it has been breathed out by God. The word inspired, you may have heard that term, the Bible is inspired. The word literally means to be God-breathed. That's what it's talking about here. There's another implication from this. It seems to imply that whereas the word of God is the light, you need the light because the world is in fact dark. That is the takeaway, actually, from this verse, almost as much as the world being light. The world is in fact dark. It points men to the beginning of their journey, which I would say is to the cross, it's pointing people to the cross, it's pointing people to Jesus Christ, the word of God is. The whole world is in the darkness, and it is the word of God that is that shining light and draws people to the light. You see, this is what the idea of the word of God is. It's a word, it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It tells us how to navigate in this world. It's a light to our feet, that means it directs our steps. Through the word of God, we learn how to follow Jesus. Simple as that, if you want to put it in its most simplest form. Through the word of God, we can learn how to follow Jesus. We learn the right things to do. We learn good from evil. We learn what it is he loves. We learn what it is he hates, what he requires of us. We learn about his grace, his attributes, his personality, everything about the wonderful king that we worship and who saved us. This is why the word of God is described elsewhere as a treasure. Its value is far above all else. We looked at that last week. How should we walk as pilgrims in this world? What does the word of God reveal to us? There are many passages about walking. If you start doing a word study, if you do a word study on walk, just tap in walk in your Bible and just read the first few hundred ones of them. It'll be so instructive for you. There are so many practical commands. Again, back to this issue, instructions for us if we don't like the term commandments. Practical guidelines. Many of us love practical instruction. It helps us know what we should do. Romans 6.4 We are to walk in newness of life. Galatians 5.25, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Ephesians 2.10, we are to walk in good works. Ephesians 4.1, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Ephesians 5.2, we are to walk in love. 2 John 1.4, we are to walk in truth. And on and on we could go. And if you do that, take 20 of the ones just look at the new testament ones for examples and you'll have a very good well-rounded picture of what it looks like to follow jesus in this world and you'll see the emphasis on things like truth and love and conduct in this world all of them representing the character of christ this is what the word of god does for us and we find this emphasized all throughout the new testament let me read you 1 thessalonians 4 chapter 1 he says finally then brethren We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So what he's basically saying here is just what we've read in this psalm. He's basically, he's probably been teaching them Psalm 119. We've given you instruction, i.e. the word of God, and because of that instruction, you know how to walk. Because the word of God is a lamp, It directs your path so you know how to walk in this world. All of these things are very much connected. But 
that's more of a personal element, our, when we're talking about our own feet, our own walk, how do we walk. But notice, it's a little bit more than that in this verse. It also says, a light to our path. And I, I extrapolate from this that it not only directs our feet, it actually illuminates the world around us, lights the path in front of you, you could say. It speaks to us of providing us with a biblical world view. That means we have the correct framework for understanding and interpreting the world. When we see things in the world, we can have a biblical perspective, whether it's major cultural issues that are relevant to our generation, whether it's social issues, ethical issues, political issues, whether it's leisure, entertainment, scientific issues. We have a biblical, we must have a biblical framework for understanding these things. We understand them in light of the teaching of the creation, the fall, and the redemption, and the gospel. These are things that we need to do. If we don't, what will happen is that you will inadvertently absorb an ideology from outside the word of God, and you'll try to add that into your, into your worldview. And eventually, you'll just be tangling yourself up because you'll start to see inconsistencies, you'll start to preach an inconsistent message, and your life will probably be quite vexed by doing that. Again, it starts with, that's how these deconversion stories often start. They absorb an outside worldview and add it to the Bible. That's not to say that everything outside the Bible is necessarily wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But you see what I mean. I'm talking about ideologies here, anti-biblical worldviews. We need to interpret all of these things by the word of God. This is what this is speaking to us. We evaluate these, these worldviews by the word of God, by the light given to us in the word of God. And I, this is probably a left out part of Christian discipleship, because we often think about the first part of this verse for Christian discipleship, how should I walk? And that's so typical, isn't it? We want to know what we should do, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you know what I mean. Sometimes we need to take a little look outside and interpret the world as well through the word of God, because people need us to explain. One thing that you know, a few people have come to me outside of the church, just through different associations, people want to know what is going on with the world right now. Like, have you noticed that? I've, I've seen it on quite a few occasions. People are starting to wonder, is the worldview that they've been taught all their lives really the right worldview? Because things are very weird right now in the world. People are seeing the division, the hatred, and all these things, and people are wondering what is going on. And this is a time where the church needs to step up and not be like the world and have that biblical worldview and present a fully-orbed picture of reality. Because we don't just have an ethical system, we have a complete biblical worldview that does purport to explain all of reality. It doesn't mean we can answer every question, don't misunderstand me, but we do have a big picture perspective. We call this a biblical worldview. This is what I believe the word of God will teach us if we study it properly. Let's read verse 111. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. Now, I think people could use a little joy in the world right now. It seems to me that the world is rather hopeless and joyless in some perspectives. This is a time, again, for Christianity to stand up and just preach the message that we have been given. It's challenging for us, I find this, because when you see a lot of the things going on, it makes you quite angry. You can easily fall into the mob mentality of moaning and moaning and not really knowing what the solution is. The solution is right here. You meditate on the word of God, I believe. You delight in the word of God, it will become the overflow of your heart, it will illuminate the world, you won't be surprised, and you can do and walk in the manner that Jesus has called you to walk. It says he has inclined his heart, or determined his heart, your Bible might say. This means he is convinced 
His demeanour is one that is focused towards the word of God, and he does this forever. I have inherited your testimonies forever. That's an unusual sort of expression there, I've inherited. An inheritance is something that we receive from someone else, and it is usually very valuable. You understand that? This is a great way to describe the word of God. His inheritance is the word of God. It's the joy of his heart. It's where he turns to for all of his needs, his constant happiness and comfort. And it says they are the joy of his heart. What a desire for life. You see, what a way to live your life, constantly desiring, constantly in love with the word of God. To ever be following the direction that the word of God gives us. And then look how it ends. This is our last, we'll finish on this last verse. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes. That means he is focused on following the word of God forever, even to the end. Now, what do you think he means by end? He's either talking about his own death, really, is probably what he's referring to in this context. And I love that. He's thinking about his whole life here in this picture. His main desire and affection in life is to incline his heart to follow and obey the word of God until that moment the Lord takes him. That's his desire in life. Every step, he follows the Lord until he's with the Lord. What a desire for life. Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.